give you more information about Christmas stuff coming up at church then. All right, well, let's look to God's Word together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're not there already, go ahead and turn there with me. 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it's a letter kind of towards the middle of the New Testament. And if you want to use that uh, church Bible in front of you, it's on page 990. 990 in the, in the church Bible in front of you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this morning we're going to wrap up. Both of these letters that we've been studying for a few months now, we're going to cover verses 6 through 18. 6 through 18 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's look at that together. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way, The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Back at the beginning of September, when we started the study through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I mentioned that every local church around us and all over the world is known for something. Every local church has a reputation of some kind, that there's an image that each church portrays to the watching world about who they are and about what they do. And we considered the question back back at the beginning of September of what image comes to mind, to our mind, to the other people's mind, when someone thinks of our church? What image comes to mind when somebody thinks of our church? I said at that time, that if I could pick an image that I want and pray people to think of when they think of our church, it would be the image of a lighthouse. A lighthouse. A lighthouse, as you know, helps the crew of a ship navigate dark and stormy waters so they can avoid danger, so they can be led to the harbor for rest and for guidance. And for traveling ships, the lighthouse is not the destination, but it guides them to the destination. And I pray that we would be a church that holds out the light of the gospel to all people in order to guide worn and weary people through the darkness and storms of this world and lead them towards the God who can give them rest and who can give them hope. 
And as we come to the end of this study today, I want to bring that image back to our minds. The image of the lighthouse. We've learned through these two letters over the past couple months that being a lighthouse to this world means being steadfast in our faith. That's, that's the powerful part about a lighthouse for travelers. It's, it's a steady presence. No matter what the weather is, no matter what's going on, the lighthouse is always there. And we become steadfast people. We become faithful followers of Jesus by continually hoping in our steadfast Savior who's come to save us. And as we just sang, will one day come again. So what the truths of these two letters are forming in us is this reality that steadfastness is not just about what God has done in the past, not just about what God's going to do in the future, but what God is doing in our lives right now. Would it surprise you to hear that one of the most important ways that you and I can be a lighthouse of the gospel in this world is not through how we worship on Sundays, although obviously that's super important. But one of the most important ways we can be a lighthouse of the gospel in this world is not through how we worship on Sundays, but through how we work Monday through Friday. The truth that we have in our heads and the faith that the Lord has given us in our hearts should result in hard work with our hands. And that's what Paul wants the Thessalonians to see. That's what God wants us to see at the very end of this letter because Paul's bringing up this issue that he's heard about that's going on in the church. He's bringing up this issue that he's talked to them about before. And we're going to walk through this and see the connections for us in our lives. And it's going to eventually lead us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's look first at the challenge that Paul brings up. This is when he's talking about work. There's, first, there's the challenge. The challenge. Paul comes to the very end of this letter. He's written to them about so many different things. And he comes to the end of this letter and addresses a topic that's causing trouble in their church. It's causing trouble in their community. And it's clear from the very beginning what the problem is, what the challenge is. Let's look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This is not a suggestion that Paul gives. It's not a recommendation. It's a very clear command. He says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not walking in accord with the tradition we taught you. I want to highlight a few words in that sentence because it's, it's pretty weighty. There's a lot packed in there. So I want to highlight a few words, pick it apart to help us begin to feel the weight of what he's saying here. The first thing he, first phrase I want to see is he says that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. That's the core of the problem in the church. That's the challenge. They have people in their church that are walking in idleness. Walking meaning their lifestyle, their living, not just this one-time issue, but this ongoing issue. And idleness. There are some Christians in their church that have decided to stop working. Now we could look through the letter and think maybe they stopped working because they had these wrong ideas about what God was going to do in the future, wrong ideas about other things. We don't know for sure. But Paul's talked to them about this multiple times. And they're, they're stopping working isn't just doing nothing. We're going to see more on that in a little bit. But the command here is addressed to those who are, have refused to work, not those who are unable to work. 
So don't let this cause you or others you know some unnecessary guilt. If you are unable to work because of some particular health issue or circumstance or whatever that may be, this is not a command towards you. This is for those who are unwilling to work, not unable. They refuse to do it. And the other, the other phrase is this. He says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Brother referring to another Christian. So this isn't a challenge that is coming about because of the non-Christians in their community. This is a challenge that's coming about because of the Christians. That the believers, the followers of Jesus in their church have neglected the gift of work that God has given them. And he says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not accord according to the tradition that you received from us. Paul and his team have taught them the biblical truth that work is a good gift from God. That work existed before sin ever came into the world. And God intends us to be people who work. That's part of what it means that you and I are created in God's image. We're people who are productive, who do things with the gifts and skills and talents the Lord has given us. And our hard work is an expression of obedience to God. Paul wrote to them about this all the way back in 1 Thessalonians. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, just really short and brief, he said, admonish the idle. Admonish the idle. So this is something that's come up before. It's something that seems to be an ongoing problem. And all this I want us, want us to see connected to one more phrase. The very beginning of verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that I just explained flows out of that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This command that Paul is giving, it carries the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but obedience to this command leads us to reflect the Lordship of Christ in our lives. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Idleness, laziness, that might sound like a small thing. We all go through phases of laziness. That's just kind of part of life. But Paul's saying it's not a small thing. It's not just some throwaway deal that we don't have to worry about. He's saying idleness, laziness does not match the teaching you've heard. So therefore, laziness and idleness does not match the truth that Jesus is Lord. There's something about Believing the truth that Jesus is Lord that prompts hard work in our lives. Productive work contributing to the good of society. Laziness communicates Jesus isn't Lord. Laziness communicates I'm Lord. And I do what I want when I want. So the idleness he's talking about, it doesn't fit with Christianity. Refusing to work does not fit with Christianity. Now, to be sure, this is not just some random command. Paul's not like, what can I be nitpicky about with the Thessalonians as I wrap up this letter? Haven't really said anything hard. Let me throw out something hard to really put a zinger in at the end. No, it's not some random command. This is something he lived out. He embodied this in his own life. He, he explains that. Let's look at verse 7. He tells them about his own example. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. So Paul and his team spent some time with the Thessalonians, and they lived out what it looks like 
to be about productivity and hard work in a way that honors Jesus. He says in verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And he says in verse 9, It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. The goodness of working hard wasn't something Paul just talked about. It wasn't something he just wrote about. It was a lifestyle he lived. He spent his energy on work. He was productive in his job as a tent maker with his hands. He was productive in ministry as he served these people and helped them follow Jesus. And he tells them in verse 9 that he didn't use his right as an apostle to just sit back and let them provide for his needs. He says he could have done that, but instead he lived differently to give them an example that we are to work so our lives benefit other people, not make a burden on other people. That's the measuring stick here. That's almost the litmus test that Paul's putting before us. He says at the end of verse 8, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So the question is, do we work in such a way that we benefit other people or are our lives a burden to other people? Because of idleness or laziness. And he's taught them the seriousness, seriousness of this before. He reminds them in verse 10, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That's a pretty big deal, right? If you're not willing to work, you don't get to eat. For me, that would get my attention. I don't know about you. If someone says, hey, you can't eat if you don't work, I'd say, well, give me a job now. I love food way too much to not be able to eat. But it's not just some kind of consequence thing here. Again, notice he says, if anyone is not willing to work. Again, this is not about those who are not able. And if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul said, if someone's not willing to provide for themselves, don't bail them out. They're not walking in accord with the gospel of Jesus. So what he does is he lays out the seriousness of the wrong that's happening, the challenge that's going on. And once he's given them this command and laid out the background, he starts to pinpoint the specifics of their disobedience to Christ and then what obedience would look like. This is going to give a better idea for how this connects to us today. Let's, let's jump in at verse 11. He says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Paul uses a, a play on words here. Those walking in idleness, they're not busy, but busybodies. This is why I said earlier that idleness doesn't automatically mean you're doing nothing. Idleness is not, and laziness is not just being inactive. It can also mean being active at the wrong things. Being active at things that are not productive. Being active at things that do not, that do not contribute. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that any moment in life that we just sit down to rest, we're sinning. Or when you just do something for the enjoyment of it, or you go on a vacation, or you go to the movies, or you go out to eat, that you're doing something that's, let's not run to that extreme. I don't think that's what is happening here. But he says that they're not busy at work, they're busy bodies. And it describes the people who are active but are unproductive. People who use their time 
on the kinds of things that distract other people from productive work. Those who are concerned about the business of other people while not taking care about, of their own business. That's what, it, that's what a busybody is. It would be a, a few months back, uh, Carrie Lynn and I got to go to a, a cooking class where kind of like a date night thing where you show up and this chef teaches you how to make this meal and you, you just make the best meal you've ever made in your life and you could never recreate it at home and it was so, so, so good. We loved it. Had a really good time. But being a busybody would be like if I'm at my cooking station and there was another couple next to us that we got to know while we were there and they're at their cooking station. Busybody is the person, you, you're not really doing that. No, you didn't mix those ingredients right. Well, no, you got to flip it over after about a couple minutes all while my food is burning to a crisp on my cooking station. That's busybody. I'm so concerned about their deal, I'm completely missing that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And Paul's saying that's the issue of laziness and idleness, that you're actually distracting yourself from work and distracting other people from work by being more in other people's mess and business that you're not taking care of what God's given you to take care of. God's word is drilling down to our hearts in this area in the sense that if you and I neglect the callings and responsibilities God has put in front of us or we just do them halfway and instead give our time and our energy to the distracting and unproductive work of gossip or the distracting and unproductive work of just mindless scrolling on our phones or the distractive distracting unproductive work of binge-watching another show, we're walking in idleness. Enjoying a good show, looking at stuff on your phone, those two things are, are not bad things, but if we do those things to the extent that we're not fulfilling the responsibilities God has given us, that's where we're walking in idleness, not according to the lordship of Jesus. But Paul gives us some clues at the very end. Here's what obedience looks like. So if that's what we're not supposed to do, then what are we supposed to do? And this is the rhythm of the Christian life. Jesus died and rose again so that you and I, our old sinful selves, would die. And then he would create his image in us. So that's why the New Testament uses language of take off and put on. Take off and put on. So as those who are following Jesus, we're to take off idleness, laziness, and put on what he describes here in verse 12. Here's what he says. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's that phrase again, in the Lord Jesus Christ. To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. To do their work quietly and earn their own living. This is what obedience looks like. This is what it looks like to work in a way that honors Jesus. To do their work quietly. That's not about the volume of your work. Like sound volume. It's not about quiet work is holier. And if you're using a saw or banging a hammer, that's wrong. It's not what he means. No, he's saying quiet work is the kind of work where you're not distracting others from being productive. You're, you're running your lane. You're doing what the Lord has called you to do. And he says to earn your own living, to not be a burden to other people because of your refusal to work, but to benefit yourself and others. In that way. So as we just scan over verses 6 through 12, the main lesson here is that our work, whether you work in an office, 
in a factory, your work is at home, you work on a team, you work alone, you work at some huge company, you're self-employed, your work is school, whatever it is you're stepping into tomorrow morning. The message here is that our work is an expression of our faith in Christ. And the way we go about our work, the way we work, is an opportunity, a very high visibility arena to display what the Lordship of Christ is about. That we are not people who care too much about our work, but we're also not people who care too little about our work. But we see our work as an arena in which we can honor Christ by working hard and loving other people. Sometimes our jobs frustrate us. We don't want to go to work. We don't like the job that we're currently in. Or there's just aspects of the job that you don't like. It's hard to get motivated on Monday morning. Like you begin to feel it Sunday night. The burden of going to work or school or whatever it is the next day. But let that frustration, work through that frustration. Listen, interact with that thought. Don't just suppress it. But then also let that frustration remind you that work is not meant to be the fulfillment anyways. But that rather it's an avenue through which to glorify and honor Jesus. And this is what Paul is laying out. Jesus is Lord. Let's work in a way that shows that. So Paul's laid out the challenge. And then he's going to put that challenge in the context of the community of their church. So that's the next piece, the, the community. The community. We'll see this uh, starting in verse 13, where Paul's going to turn from those who are walking in idleness. He's talked to them. Now he's going to talk to the people who aren't doing that, who are working faithfully and are honoring Christ through how hard they work and being faithful to the role God has put them in. Here's what they should do. Verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Paul says this because he knows the laziness and the burden of those who refuse to work can discourage the people who are trying to work and be faithful to the Lord. You've seen this at your jobs. If you have someone or in your, the, the place you can see this very clearly is a group project at school. And then those dynamics never really go away as people get older. It's always there. In group projects at school, you have the person who does all the work. How many of you were that people in your group projects at school? Okay. But then you have the people who mildly contribute. How many of you were those people? Okay, some of you. Then you have the people who just benefit from everyone else's work and they're in the group. How many of you were those people in school? Okay, you can be honest, all right. What he's saying in, in those situations, he's, as the, the person who's working hard in a school project or even at work, when you see the, the laziness or the dishonesty or the, the, the frustrations of other people, that can cause you discouragement. And, and to just think, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? If these people are getting away with this or if they're about this and it's not affecting them, then why am I working so hard? That's why Paul's saying, don't grow weary in doing good. This is steadfastness. Stay steadfast. Keep being the lighthouse. He knows that kind of living around you can cause your love and generosity and faithfulness to turn into cynicism and bitterness and discouragement. So he tells them, don't give up. Don't let other people slacking off lead you to slow down in your faithfulness to Christ. Remain steadfast. 
Because he's telling us working hard day after day, week after week, it's doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. It's good to others. It's good to yourself. It honors Christ. The charge here is carry out the responsibilities God has given you because it meets needs in the world. It it honors Jesus. It loves others. And work and productivity and accomplishments, they're all gifts from God. So don't let other people's misuse of those gifts drag you down from enjoying and utilizing those gifts God has given you to honor him. And then he says next in verse 14, still bringing this into the context of their community, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. This verse seems kind of strange, and it reads a little harsh, right? When I was in elementary school, I got to be on this very elite group called the Safety Patrol. Very elite group. I mean, I I put it on my resume for college, put it on my resume when I was applying to work at this place. It's the reason I got to be a youth pastor. They were like, you were a Safety Patrol in LaGrange Elementary? You're the guy. Part of safety patrol is, one, you got to wear this, like, orange, bright orange little deal, like, that went diagonal this way and then went around your waist, and it had a badge on it. That's what was so cool. Wish I still had I would wear it today if I still had it. And you walk around the school, and you were helping keep everybody safe. So you would take note of people that were running, ask them to walk, and you felt like, I mean, this is for older students, you were kind of like the, the king of the school and you felt like you had some authority. Hey, no running in the hallways, please. Try to keep traffic moving. As kids came off the bus, you had to make sure they got to the right place. <laughs> One time I walked into, I just now remember this, I was not very good at my job. I walked into the bathroom, these two kids were fighting. I turned around and left. So I just realized, did not keep things safe in that moment. I need to go back and apologize to my teachers for that. But you, you were taking note of what other people were doing and trying to correct and keep everybody safe. And I think we read a verse like this, it can, it can sound or feel like that. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. And have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So does that mean we're all just kind of walking around policing each other? Well, I think it means, doesn't, doesn't mean we're safety patrol all over the place around here and watching each other's lives in in an extreme way. But he says, have nothing to do with that person. He he said back in verse 6 to keep away from the people that are walking in idleness. I don't think that means that you never talk to them or completely avoid them. He's going to say in the next verse, warn them as a brother. I think it means don't let them influence your lifestyle. Don't let how they live change how you live. Don't grow weary in doing good. Stay faithful to Christ. And for those that are not faithful, watch them, notice them, and don't let them change you. Follow the example of Paul, not the example of the people that are idle, he's saying. Why do that? Why not let them, why take note of them, why not be influenced by them, and even have hard conversations with them, why? He says at the very end of verse 14, that he may be ashamed. 
He's saying live in such a way, interact with them in such a way that they sense the seriousness of their sin. That they sense they are not following Jesus. Obedience to God is serious. Disobedience to God is serious and weighty. And live in such a way that will allow them and lead them to ultimately repent of their sin and follow Christ. And I think Paul senses that his instructions could be misunderstood. And so he says in verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul helps us realize that when you and I are correcting someone who are walking out of step with the way of Jesus, we're not doing so with the heart of pride and with the heart of hatred towards them, but with a heart of love and humility towards them. This person is a brother or sister in Christ. We have the same Lord and Savior as them. We want to see them follow Jesus. So if you and I are to be a church together, if we are to be a church that is a lighthouse for Christ, we have to help each other walk in obedience. Not in some kind of safety patrol weird way, but that the brightness of our light as a lighthouse is directly related to our obedience to Christ. Not that we're telling people to follow us, but that our laziness or selfishness or disobedience can certainly turn people away from Christ. So we want to live in such a way and encourage and challenge and help each other live in such a way that points other people to Christ. Of course this means how we live here, but how many more hours do we spend outside of this building compared to how much time we spend in here? So it's praying for each other, encouraging each other, being about each other's obedience. Because God has called us to be a community of people who depend on Jesus a community of people who work hard, a community of people who love one another and who kindly and seriously call each other back to Christ when we go astray. This is the goal of it. This is the goal that whether in our work, whether in our community, as we help each other obey Christ, the goal is to honor Christ in all things. That's why he ends this letter the way he does. So we're going from the challenge to the community and at the very end here, the conclusion. The conclusion. This is why he ends this way. And I say the conclusion not just because it's the end of the letter, but because this is the end of the matter. There's no throwaway words here. Paul's not just like, well, that sounded pretty hard, so let me just put some flowery language here at the end so it lands a little softer. No, he's saying, I want you to hear everything I've said in light of what I say here at the very end. Let's look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul ends here by encouraging them and anchoring them and us in God's peace God's presence, and God's grace. These Christians in Thessalonica, you remember how we've talked about the different situations they were in. They were discouraged by persecution. They were confused by false teaching. They were divided by wrong ideas about work like we just saw. And Paul has written two letters, both full of specific correction, specific encouragement, specific teaching, to help them endure persecution, to help them understand truth, to help them resolve 
their divisions. But after all of that, where does he ultimately leave their attention? On Christ. He said, follow my example, talk to one another about this, help each other with this. But ultimately, he leaves them looking at Jesus. And he leaves us looking at Jesus Christ, the Lord. He tells them, your circumstances are not peaceful. Your relationships aren't peaceful. There's, there's tension with the, the work issue. But Jesus, the Lord of peace, can give you an evergreen peace that never shifts or fades. He knows they had enemies coming and going and that their disagreements at times separated them from each other. But he tells them the presence of Jesus can be the constant in their lives. The Lord be with you all, he says. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He knows they failed. He knows they had weaknesses, that they could not uphold their own lives. They could not uphold their own faith. But the grace of Jesus that he talks about at the end can be the source of forgiveness for their failures, strength for their weaknesses as they journey together towards heaven. Paul did not write these closing sentences just to make sure the letter ended at a comfortable place. He wrote these closing sentences to make sure the letter ended in a hopeful place, a solid place, so that it's not just about you and each other, but ultimately about how we're all responding to and walking with Christ. And like many of Paul's letters, the truth of grace, God's grace and God's peace bookend this letter. So we we just saw this here in verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now look with me at the very beginning of this letter. Just one page back. That's how he ends the letter, God's peace, God's grace. Notice how he starts the letter. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there if you want to. I'll read it for all of us to hear. This is at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians. The first letter he wrote to them. He says, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, grace to you and peace. And then at the end of 1 Thessalonians, this is chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 28 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 1 Thessalonians starts grace and peace. 1 Thessalonians ends grace and peace. 2 Thessalonians starts grace and peace. 2 Thessalonians ends grace and peace. Both letters start with grace and peace and end with grace and peace because the Christian life starts with God's grace and God's peace and ends with God's grace and God's peace. God's grace is his one-way love his forgiving favor towards us. He freely forgives and rescues sinners, though we do not deserve it in the slightest. And it's grace and peace because there is no peace without grace. We can have peace with God because of the grace that comes from God. 
And he's saying at the end of 2 Thessalonians, when he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, he's saying, may God keep being gracious to you. May the same grace that saved you carry you to the end. We don't deserve to know this God. We don't deserve to know his truth. Yet, not only do we get to know him and his truth, but we get to live with him and be changed by him and know him forever. So by God's grace, we can be a lighthouse as we keep pressing on, knowing our Savior is going to come back. By God's grace, we can be a lighthouse as we strive to live holy lives, knowing that's God's will for us. By God's grace, we can be a lighthouse as we go to work tomorrow and work hard and help each other obey Jesus day after day, week after week. Being a lighthouse for the gospel is not about giant displays of religious experiences. It happens when we trust Jesus and worship him in the ordinary day-to-day rhythms of our lives. We can be a lighthouse for Jesus, yes, in how we worship on Sundays. Of course we want that. But even more, and especially so, in how we work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, how we live Saturday, day after day. And God's grace enables that because we have peace with God, and we want to lead others to that same grace and peace. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper together.